Well, good evening, everyone, and thank you very much for coming here to the NSC this evening. And also, many thanks to, to Michael Pollan for, for coming. Michael is Professor of Journalism at Berkeley, and he's also an author and a journalist. And he succeeded in something we'd all love to do, which is writing about something that he has passion for, which is food. And I think he does it rather sort of better than me. I write about safety and hygiene, which isn't the best way to engage with your passions, where I think you write about the enjoyment of cooking. So well done for that. Uh, food is, of course, a, a source of, of, of a lot of academic interest, especially in the social sciences. So, so it's an exciting topic, both academically and in terms of, of one's hobbies and passions. And Michael combines the academic work and the passion with activism as well, in terms of urging us to think about the quality of the food that we eat and where it comes from. And this evening's lecture is called Cooking as a Political Act, and afterwards, Michael's going to be signing his, his new book, Cooked, and we'll go through the logistics of that. So if you want to, to buy the book, you'll be able to, and he will sign it for you. Uh, one of the things that attracted me when I read, about, read the book and also read the flyers for it was that he underlines a really important paradox, which we'll all be rather ashamed to admit we recognize, I think, which is that the more we watch programs on TV about cooking, the less we actually cook ourselves. So I rather <laughs> blushed at that point <laughs> because I recognised it. I'm sure everybody else does. But it is absolutely fascinating in terms of the way that we, we socially deal with the subject of food and cooking. We're looking forward to your lecture and also the discussion afterwards. And for those of you who use Twitter, then the hash is hash LSE cooking. And I should remind you that the, uh, this evening's event is going to be recorded, so be mindful of that. And technology willing, I'm sure it will be willing, this will appear online as a podcast. Michael, we look very much forward to your, your talk, and thank you so much for coming here this evening. Thank you, Bridget. Thank you very much. I think I'm going to stand up if it's okay. Oh, thank you. To get away from that tapping over there. Um, thank you. Thanks very much for that kind introduction. Thank you all for coming. Um, what I'd like to do in the next 30 or 40 minutes is, is tell you a little bit about how I came to write this book and, and, the, uh, and why I think cooking is a political act uh, and an agricultural act as well. Um, and then I'd love to hear from you and engage with you and answer your questions uh, to the extent that I'm able. Um, I never set out to write a book about cooking. It was never in my life plan. Um, like a lot of journalists, and that's what I am um, foremost, I like to write about exotic things, things beyond our immediate ken. Uh, I like to peel back the curtains, and I've written about agriculture and feedlots and the way we produce food, and I've written about the science of nutrition and taking people into kind of hidden worlds. And cooking seemed kind of obvious. It's, it's right in front of us. We all do it or don't do it, but we kind of know what it's about. But um, as, I, as I kind of uh, explored the food system, I came to think that I, ha I needed to address cooking. In fact, we all need to address cooking. Um, I've been on a journey now for more than 10 years of following the food chain, as I call it. Uh, that is, the, the systems that link us to the earth through our eating. Uh, and in Omnivore's Dilemma, which is my first kind of full-dress book about food, I, uh, I looked a lot at agriculture. And I tried to answer a very straightforward question, which is, where does our food come from? This is something everybody, of course, once knew. 
not that long ago. It's only in the last few decades that we've gotten so disconnected from the origins of our food that a journalist could actually make a good living telling you where it came from. Um, this was, you know, this was obvious information. Uh, and it was shocking what I learned. Um, and uh, I was um, uh, amazed to learn that food had been revolutionized in the last 50 years in ways many of us are not uh, aware of. That the food kind of looks the same and it's sold using the same images of small farms, diversified farms. Um, and, uh, but in fact, it's, it's completely different than it once was. Um, after doing that book, I leapt ahead because I was hearing from a lot of readers that they had questions and they said, oh, all this ethics of food is fine, but what should I eat for my health? And so I wrote a couple books about nutrition science and uh, in defense of food and uh, food rules were both attempts to figure out what do we know about the links between diet and our health. And I explored the very murky science of, of nutrition. And um, one of the surprising things that came out of that is that um, the most important thing about your diet is not necessarily the nutrients in it, good or bad, the ones you are trying to get a lot of and the ones you're trying to avoid, or even the number of calories you're eating, but in fact, inactivity, whether that food has been cooked by a human being or a corporation. This turns out to be one of the biggest predictors of health and that people who outsource their cooking to fast food corporations in particular, but any kind of corporation, uh, tend to have much less healthy diets than people whose food is being cooked by humans, preferably themselves. Um, so that was kind of interesting. And then on the, on the agriculture side, I also began to realize that this cooking question had a tremendous influence on the kind of farming we have. And that the industrialization of agriculture that I was, I was charting in Omnivore's Dilemma was very closely tied to the industrialization of eating. And that to the extent that we were allowing fast food corporations to cook for us, we were revolutionizing our agriculture. I'll give you just one example. Um, if you go to McDonald's anywhere in the world, you will find French fries, or chips as you call them. Um, forgive me if I call them French fries, because I get mixed up because chips are crisps. Um, <laughs> it's all very complicated. Um, anyway, always those French fries will be made with the same kind of potato, the russet Burbank potato. It was developed in America uh, by Luther Burbank. It's a really long potato. And it's, um, uh, its virtue to McDonald's is that when you make french fries from it, you get really long french fries. And you know they love those red boxes with the kind of bouquet of, of, of crisps coming out of it, uh, of <laughs> chips coming out of it. See, that's why I don't want to go there. Um, so they insist that all their farmers all over the world grow russet Burbank potatoes. The problem is russet Burbanks by now are very hard to grow, especially if you're trying to avoid something called net necrosis, which is, you know, you know, sometimes you see those little brown lines in a potato or spots. Well, it's a completely harmless aesthetic defect. But McDonald's will not tolerate it. They'll reject a shipment of potatoes because they think the French fry has to be perfect. So to get rid of net necrosis, farmers growing these giant monocultures of russet Burbank uh, have to use really toxic pesticides, like one called Monitor, that is such a potent neurotoxin that farmers will not go into their fields, will barely go out of their house for five days after they spray it. Uh, it's so dangerous. 
Um, and once these potatoes come out of the ground, they can't be sold because they have so many systemic pesticides in them that you have to uh, put them in these giant atmosphere-controlled uh, warehouses and in these pyramids of russet Burbank potatoes and let them off-gas their pesticides like a new carpet or new office building before you can dare to eat them. All of this, you see, the fact that there's only one kind of potato, the fact that you have to use these pesticides, is dictated by the fact that McDonald's is buying 7% of the potato crop in America, and they want them all to look the same way. So industrialized eating or, or industrial cooking leads to industrial agriculture, and it is, it is precisely what has given us these huge monocultures of both plants and animals. So there was the second clue that this area in the middle of the food chain between the growing of the food and the absorption of the food in your body, the transformations of the things coming out of nature into meals was really the most influential part of the food chain. And that's when I realized, well, it would be worthwhile to write a book about what I thought I knew, um, which was cooking. Uh, and there was something else, too. There was an epiphany that Bridget alluded to, which is I was watching a lot of cooking shows on TV, um, and at the same time I was learning that rates of home cooking were, were declining precipitously in, uh, in America and in Great Britain, and that uh, Americans are cooking on average 27 minutes a day per person and cleaning up four minutes a day. Uh, yeah, you, you laugh because it's kind of hard to imagine what kind of cleaning up you could do in four minutes. Um, it strongly implies the kind of cooking you're doing is not that messy. Um, and in fact, it's probably enough time to crumple a pizza box and scrape a few plates, but it isn't really enough time to tackle a pot. Um, and indeed, the definition of cooking in those statistics is, is pretty uh, loose, pretty squishy. Um, but when I saw those numbers, I realized there are now tens of millions of people who spend more time watching other people cook on television than they spend cooking themselves. And that was a paradox that I was kind of curious to unpack. Um, I'm not sure why this is, but it does point to the fact that cooking is special. Cooking compared to many of the other activities we no longer do, um, we seem interested in it. We've outsourced a lot in modern life, right? I mean, our economy is such that you get paid to do one thing, whatever you do for a living, and you're supposed to take that money and use it to hire someone else to do everything else that needs doing in your life, whether it's making your clothes or um, you know, uh, changing the oil in your car, repairing your car. That's, what we, that's how it's supposed to work. And, and we all kind of fall into this uh, specialized, highly specialized economy. Um, in the case of fixing your car or sewing your clothes, we don't watch television programs about it. We've outsourced this work and we haven't really looked back. We're kind of okay with it. But cooking is different. And I tried to figure out why that is. And I have a couple ideas. Um, one is simply that we all have, or most of us have, very powerful, warm memories of being in the kitchen as children, being, wh where our parents were cooking for us, uh, or our grandparents, and that the processes that unfold there were captivating, magic. I mean, I remember watching my mom scrambled eggs. You know, a very simple thing. You take this kind of disgusting yellow goop, 
And by putting it in a pan with a little butter and, you know, doing that to it, you, you can um, suddenly you create these incredibly flavorful golden nuggets. And one just kind of leaps out of the other. And, and then the gift, the, you know, your mother or your father or your grandparents giving you something special that you really like. These are, these are deep memories that a lot of us still have, fewer, though fewer of us all the time. I also think that cooking goes really deep in us as a species. And I want to talk a little bit about that. Um, and this was another thing that, that made me realize that cooking was something that I wanted to explore. Um, I don't know if you've heard of the cooking hypothesis, uh, but it's a theory put forth by a Harvard primatologist and anthropologist named Richard Wrangham uh, several years ago. And he was trying to answer a question that anthropologists and archaeologists have been trying to answer for a long time, which is why and when did we diverge from the other apes? At a certain point in our evolution, our brains grew substantially larger than other apes our size, and our guts got a lot smaller. Um, and there was some change in our diet that allowed this to happen. Um, for, many, for a long time, people thought it was meat-eating. But if you actually look at meat-eating, if you're not cooking meat, it takes an awful lot of energy to absorb it, to digest it. Rangham postulated that what happened was we discovered cooked food. When you take that piece of meat and put it over a fire, some really amazing things happen to it, this, a transformation that renders it much more digestible. You don't need as much energy to break it down in your body because essentially you've externalized a lot of the digestion to the fire. You also don't need to chew it as much. And um, indeed, if you look at other apes our size, they spend half their waking hours in the act of chewing. This is why they don't get that much done. Um, so that, and, and plus cooking detoxifies food. It kills bacteria on food, and it detoxifies certain kinds of foods that you can't eat raw, like cassava and, and, and other tubers, um, because there are chemicals in them that, that will kill you. And so the advent of cooking, which he postulates happened about 1.9 million years ago, that's before we were actually homo sapiens, um, uh, gave us access to this incredible uh, new source, cache of calories that other animals didn't have. And this is what allowed our brains to get much bigger and complex. At the same time, we could devote less metabolic resource to our guts, and our guts got smaller. Now, they're starting to get bigger again, so we're kind of going backwards. But, but compared to other apes our size, that's what's happened. But the other thing that cooking gave us, cooking with fire, is the meal oddly enough, because before you, had, before you cooked with fire, if you were a hunter-gatherer, you kind of ate wherever you found your food. You didn't really have to eat it as a group. You might bring it home to your family unit or whatever it was, but, um, but basically you ate whenever. Um, but as soon as you cook, other things change also. You need, for example, several people cooperating. Someone's got to keep the fire going while you're getting the food or preparing the food. And then this other thing happens. You have this circle of animals, because that's what we were, and in fact still are, around this fire. And so you had to enforce certain rules. You had to delay gratification. 
is you were very hungry and there was this delicious food and you had to wait for it to cook and you had to figure out a way to share it or apportion it um, and you needed uh, rules and indeed rules pop up around meat eating all over the world for a very long I mean think about the kosher rules in Leviticus it's all about meat eating or in, uh, in the Odyssey or the Iliad there's so many rules around meat eating because it's such a charged important ceremonial thing so in that sense cooking really did make us human it is the turning point in our evolution and in the turning point in the development of civilization so it's a big deal now in deciding to write about cooking, I was thinking about how to do it. I did want to write a book that would make people appreciate the importance of this very old human activity. And by the way, we are the only animal that cooks. We are the cooking animal. It does set us apart. Although there is an exception that proves the rule, and if you remind me, I'll tell you what it is later. There are some animals that conceivably, arguably cook. Um, <laughs> Uh, so how to, how to attack this big subject? Um, well, I did what I often do when I'm writing about anything, which is try to get back to origins and reduce it to its common denominator and get really, really basic and elemental. And what I discovered was that I could divide all kinds of cooking across all kinds of cultures into four basic transformations. And that these transformations align very closely with the classical elements. So there was cooking with fire, there was cooking with water, there was cooking with air, and there was cooking with earth, which is fermentation. So um, you can probably find exceptions to the rule. I don't know where to put sushi in this scheme. <laughs> Arguably it's not cooked, maybe it is cooked. It depends how you define cooking. Um, but So let me just quickly walk you through these four transformations. Um, fire we've already talked about. This is the most basic, oldest kind of cooking we have, which is simply meat over fire and other things over fire. And to learn how that was done, I, I traveled to the American South uh, and learned about barbecue. I was, I was trying to find what's the most unreconstructed cooking that still exists. And I found it in eastern North Carolina. Not western. <laughs> they have a whole different kind of barbecue in western North Carolina. In fact, the South is balkanized by barbecue regions. And every region thinks every other region's practices are an abomination. But they're all cooking meat over fire, just different parts of meats with different sauces. But uh, So if you're like west of a certain dividing line that passes through Lexington, North Carolina, you are cooking pork shoulders and you have a sauce that has a tomato base. But if you're east of there, you're only cooking whole hog no sauce. And if you're south of there in South Carolina, you're putting, you have a yellow sauce with mustard base, etc. And if you're in Texas, it's, you're cooking beef and sausages, and it goes on. It's just, there's a map that shows these incredible um, breakdowns. But the one I like best was Eastern North Carolina, because all it is is a whole hog, a wood fire, thyme, and salt. That's it. It's the simplest recipe you can imagine. And so for, for this section, as with all the sections of the book, what I do is I apprentice myself to a master, a great pit master in this case, who taught me how he does it, the secrets of barbecue and the history of barbecue and the traditions. And I had a, you know, I had a wonderful time in North Carolina uh, at these public barbecue events uh, learning how to chop and season and cook the meat. And so 
although the book sounds like up to now kind of a polemic, uh, it's actually not. Or if it is, there is a polemic, it's kind of submerged. It's very much an education. It's the story of how I learned these things, these, these, these fundamental transformations. So that was fire. Um, and, uh, and then water. So what do we mean by cooking with water? Well, fast forward from 1.9 million years to just 10,000 years ago. And that is when the next important innovation in cooking comes about. That is when we developed earthenware glazed uh, pottery or, uh, that, that can survive being put over a fire without cracking or falling apart, and that can hold water. Until then, food had to be cooked over a fire, which means you can't eat certain things that you can't put over a fire. It's very hard to eat little grass seeds when you have to toast them over a fire without a pot. But now you can boil water, and you can soften seeds, which means you can have agriculture. You, you can have grain. You can make porridges and gruels. And this is a, a tremendous leap uh, for our species, and it coincides with the birth of agriculture, and it's impossible to say which comes first. At least we don't know. Um, but you probably need the pots to do agriculture. Um, and so now we can eat the plants that come out of agriculture, particularly grain, which is a very powerful crop to grow because you can store it against lean times. And, um, and the other thing that's... Well, there's a couple things that are really important about it. Compared to fire cooking, you don't lose any nutrients. It's incredibly efficient. When you cook meat over a fire, you have drippings and you lose them into the fire. Um, but in a pot, you collect it all and you get this wonderful new thing comes into the world called sauce. Um, and you have flavors that develop in a different way. Fire cooking is kind of the same wherever you go. I mean, if you, if you performed a, a test and you blindfolded yourself and you were like, here's meat as cooked in Argentina and here's meat as cooked in Great Britain and here's meat as cooked in America, it would be kind of hard to tell them apart. But as soon as you start cooking with pots, you have these very distinctive cuisines developing because you're using the local plants, specifically the local aromatic plants, onions, carrots, celery, uh, peppers, tomato, garlic, and uh, scallions and ginger. And depending on which those are and which combinations, you have these flavor principles that become identified with specific cultures. So the beginning of cuisine really comes with the pot. Um, the other thing that's really important about pot cooking is that it extends the human lifespan. Before you have cooking with pots, you, it, was, you, it was very hard to have soft food. And so once you lost your teeth, you were kind of screwed. And, um, and that was kind of when life ended, pretty much, when you could no longer chew. Um, Chewing is a very important theme in this lecture. Um, and uh, so suddenly you can keep old people alive on soups and porridges and gruels, and you can wean babies much earlier uh, because without teeth they can begin to eat. Um, so this is very important for the human lifespan. Now, in... In the case of the book, this is the section of the book where I explore everyday home cooking. Uh, what my teacher, I, I, I worked with a woman, a chef, uh, a, a graduate of the Chez Panisse School of Cooking in, in Berkeley, who, who taught me about stews and soups and braises, what she calls grandma cooking. And this is the section of the book where I look at the history of domestic cooking and what's happened to it and where did it go and what, what brought it down. But I also learn... Uh, a lot of technique about how to make braises, how to make stews and soups, and um, which is, you know, 
This is all slow dishes. They take a while, but they're not, actually not that hard. They all begin with chopping onions. It's amazing how many dishes begin with onions and how, what a pain onions are. <laughs> and so for me, the onion kind of symbolizes everything I hate about cooking. I mean, here is this vegetable that fights back. And, you know, when you chop an onion, uh, an amazing thing happens. It releases a kind of tear gas. It's actually called the lacrimator by food scientists. Uh, it creates tears. It's, it's got sulfuric acid in it. And it does this, of course, to repel animals like us, uh, to keep it from eating it. it. If you'd never pierced the skin of an onion and you could somehow get in there, you would find it was completely sweet. No bite at all, no tears. But as soon as you pierce it, it releases these chemicals. Um, so onion chopping, really hated it. And a lot of what I learned in this chapter is how to get my head around chopping onions, which requires a kind of spiritual development. It took me a long time to, to, uh, to acquire. Um, but, I, but my teacher, Samin Nosrat is her name. She's an Iranian-American. And she, she practices yoga. And she said, you know, great cooking is, is just like yoga. You need patience, practice, and presence. You have to be there. You can't be fighting it. And I was a very impatient cook, I think like a lot of us. I was always divided when I came into the kitchen. Um, I could be doing something else. You know, as soon as something's optional, as cooking is for all of us, there's always something else you could be doing, and you're always conflicted about it. And that's one of the problems uh, of cooking. But um, if you approach it in a different way, what appears drudgery can turn into alchemy can actually become a really satisfying, interesting process if you're present to it. And you just say, you know what, I'm going to be in the kitchen now for an hour. This is what I'm doing. I'm getting off the screens, um, and I'm going to just kind of devote myself to this. And suddenly, what was drudgery does become magic. Um, and a very kind of nice way to spend time. Um, it took me a while to acquire this, um, but I got there. Not every day, but, but often, and it was with her help. And so now, and I have this little koan I repeat to myself, when chopping onions, just chop onions. You can live by that. <laughs> Try. Um, so that was kind of home cooking. And one of the questions I was trying to answer is whatever happened to home cooking? And there is an interesting history that really has to do with the food industry working um, assiduously over the course of a century to insinuate itself into our everyday lives. The reason for this is that it's very hard to make money, as any farmer will tell you, selling simple food, whole foods. You make money the more you can process food. You start with cheap commodities, corn, soy, wheat, rice, things like that, oils, vegetable oils, and you um, make them as elaborate as possible, package them, make them sell convenience, um, and that's how you make money. And so this has been the food industry's goal, and it still is its goal, um, to get us to hand over cooking to them. For a very long time, and in America this goes back to, uh, to Betty Crocker. She was this fictional housewife who was always adapting these clever new uh, cooking substances, various kinds, and using them to, to cook and, and streamline things, cake mixes and bread mixes and things like that. And, um, but there was a lot of resistance to processed food, to bringing processed food to the point of whole meals. And um, 
And actually, women who were doing most of the cooking rejected many of the products of processed food. When cake mixes were introduced in the 50s, for example, uh, they would just add water. Everything was in there. And women rejected them. And when the marketers went and asked them why, they said, well, I can't call it my cake if all I did was add water to it and stick it in the oven. And um, so, the, so the food scientists who were very clever, said, well, let's take something out of the mix. Let's take the powdered egg out of the mix. And we'll require the baker to crack an egg and mix it in. And suddenly it was okay. People were willing to call those cakes their own. Um, so they were working. Marketing is very, very sophisticated. And they, and they kept working at this. But their big, their big breakthrough came in the 60s and 70s. And that's when women entered the workforce in large numbers. And the feminist revolution hit. And when that happened, it became necessary to start a very uncomfortable conversation at kitchen tables all across America over the division of labor in the house. It simply wasn't tenable, wasn't fair, for women to continue to do the cooking and the cleaning and all the childcare now that they were working. So a new arrangement was called for. And in fact, many of the feminist tracks of the time called for that. And there was a lot of resistance, and it was very awkward and tense. And the food industry saw this as a wonderful opportunity. So they stepped forward and said, stop arguing. We got you covered. We'll do it ourselves. You don't have to cook. And this became the escape hatch for men and women all across uh, the West, the industrialized West. And we saw it in a, in a very clever marketing campaign that Kentucky Fried Chicken started in the, um, in, the, in the early 70s. And they took out billboards across the country with a giant bucket of Kentucky Fried Chicken, you know, that red bucket with the 14 pieces popping out, and a two-word slogan overhead, women's liberation. So you see, it was a very deliberate effort to hijack feminist rhetoric to sell processed food. And by and large, it worked. They had succeeded in defining not cooking as the most progressive thing you could do. And it let men off the hook, and we began down this path, uh, where we find ourselves not cooking very much anymore. We don't have time. Um, and we're, um, uh, we, we've made ourselves, basically, as I said, we're down to 27 minutes. Cooking, home cooking's fallen by half since the mid-60s. And... Um, this would be fine, except for one problem. The corporations don't cook very well. The food they're serving us is making us sick. Um, the problem with corporate cooking is they use very cheap raw ingredients, the cheapest they can find, and then they dress them up with salt, fat, and sugar. Three very inexpensive ingredients that we love. We're hardwired to love. And when you combine them, salt, fat, and sugar, we're just absolutely, uh, we will crave it. it. It kicks off our dopamine networks in our brains, which is all about craving, um, endless craving. And, they, and the food science is very sophisticated, and it works. And we eat a lot of foods with these three ingredients. But the other things corporate cooks do is they use lots of food additives that no mortal keeps in their pantry. And the reason for that is they need to disguise the fact that this food was cooked long ago and far away. So you have, I mean, I'm sure you don't have polysorbate 80 in your pantry. 
or xanthan gum, unless you're a molecular gastronome, uh, or you know all these other emulsifiers and, and colors, uh, artificial colors and flavors, which you need to keep this food looking halfway decent, to keep your sauces from separating. So they cook with chemicals that are problematic for our health. They cook with too much salt, fat, and sugar. And not only that, they cook different things than we cook at home. And this is the most insidious thing of all. Corporate cooking makes special occasion foods of various kinds incredibly easy. And one of the things about cooking is that things that are difficult to cook became special occasions. And so you didn't eat them that often. And the, the great example is, I hate to mention french fries again, but french fries were not a common food. They're now the number one vegetable in America. Um, if you want, you know, it's debatable whether they're a vegetable, but let's, let's acknowledge they're a vegetable. Um, this was not true. They were pretty obscure in the American diet before in the industrialization of cooking. The reason is, well, make french fries someday and you'll see the reason. You have to wash the potatoes, you have to peel the potatoes, you have to cut the potatoes, you have to fry them in a lot of oil, and then you've got to clean up the cooktop, which is completely spattered. In fact, your whole kitchen is a mess, and you then have to dispose of all this oil. You're not going to do that every day. You're going to do that once a month or every two months, which is about as often as we should probably eat french fries. But corporations make it so inexpensive, and they are, and I will acknowledge that they're really good at cooking french fries, that um, even McDonald's is good at cooking french fries, that um, we have them, many people in America have them two times a day. So, and this is true for cream-filled cakes and snacks and, you know, puffed cheese things and all this kind of stuff that would be really hard to do at home is really easy to get if corporations are doing your cooking. So this move from home-cooked, or, or let's just say human-cooked food to industrial-cooked food has been a public health disaster. And the rise in obesity and type 2 diabetes very closely tracks the decline in cooking. And in fact, you look around the world and the countries that are still cooking have much lower rates of obesity and type 2 diabetes than those like ours that have stopped cooking or, or not cooking very much. Um, so there is, a, there is a serious public health implication to this question of cooking. Um, there are two other sections, which I'm going to race through because I really want to get to your questions. One is air. What is air? Well, it's baking. It's, it's, how you, it's making bread. It's putting air in bread. And this is an innovation that happened 6,000 years ago in Egypt, we think. Um, and it's, it's really significant. It's a brilliant technology. We don't think of a loaf of bread as a technology, but we should. A scientist in my research told me, you know, if I gave you a sack of flour and water, you could not live very long but you could survive indefinitely on the bread made from that. What's different? Well, what's different is that you have a sourdough culture of microbes, of bacteria and fungi, that go to work on that smushed up grass seed and make it much more, make the nutrients in it very digestible. A grass seed is an amazing thing. Any seed is an amazing thing. It, it contains everything you need for a new life. It's got protein, fat, carbohydrates, and minerals but they're locked up tight to protect those, that, those, that pantry of nutrients for the new plant um, and, and, and protect it from humans like us or other animals. And so what the, the sourdough culture does is, is these microbes put out enzymes that break down those long polymers of carbohydrate and protein and break them into simple amino acids and sugars. 
and, and break down the, the minerals and make them accessible too. They're chelated and then they're unchelated. Um, and then when you cook it, an amazing things happens. You know, boiling water in pots or porridge, you, can, you can't get beyond the boiling point, right, by definition. But if you're cooking a loaf of bread, the bread itself becomes a pressure cooker. So every little alveole, they're called, the little, the little holes created by the yeast, the gases, steams and gets really hot, much harder than the boiling point. And this cooks the starches thoroughly, gelatinizes them, so they're really nutritious and much more tasty. So you see, cooking is this, uh, baking is this ingenious technology for rendering grass seeds digestible, tasty, and, and really, really nutritious. Um, and the last section goes deeper into microbes. Earth, cooking with no heat whatsoever. This amazing phenomenon by which we use bacteria and fungi to make, um, uh, to pickle, to make sauerkraut and kimchi, to make cheese, which is essentially, or yogurt, which is fermented milk, and to make alcohol. Um, Saccharomyces cerevisiae, this little yeast, is, I would argue, man's best friend. It is what gives us, much more useful than the dog, gives us bread and gives us alcohol. What do dogs give us that compare with those two things? Um, we just can't see it. Otherwise, we would celebrate this on a daily basis. Saccharomyces cerevisiae. Um, and so I, uh, I delved deeply into fermentation, and I met this, this community of fermentos, I call them. These are people obsessed with bacteria who have a completely different relationship to microbes than we do, which is to say they love them. Um, they don't fear them. You know, the rest of us, we've been at war with bacteria since the time of Pasteur, you know, because bacteria do cause infectious disease, but that's like a minority. Um, and, and we tar all bacteria with this, you know, unfortunate um, reputation. In fact, most bacteria are harmless or actually beneficial. And so these are people, you wouldn't believe how relaxed they are about hygiene. Um, <laughs> and I work with a cheesemaker, Sister Noella, this nun, who uh, makes cheese in a wooden barrel, and, and according to a traditional French recipe from the Auvergne, it's a Saint-Nectaire, and the instructions in her recipe are, you don't even try to sanitize this barrel, you just rinse it out with water, because there's a community of bacteria that live in that barrel that are very important to the flavor and the safety of the cheese. And she told me this story about the health department tried to close her down. She's in Connecticut, and the health department said, you can't make cheese in a wooden barrel that never gets sanitized. Stainless steel is the only way to go. And she knew that, there was, that this cheese was safe. She was making a raw milk cheese. So she actually got the mother superior at her abbey to send her to University of Connecticut to get a PhD in microbiology. <laughs> she took the long view. And, um, and, she, and she learned what was going on in that barrel. And she set up a test, an experiment for the health inspector. And she took uh, two batches of raw milk from the same uh, morning's milking, and she put one in a stainless steel vat, and she put one in her wooden barrel. And she deliberately inoculated it with E. coli, okay, a real concern in raw milk. Um, and she waited four hours, and something really interesting happened. In the stainless steel uh, vat, the E. coli levels got so high that this milk was completely toxic, really dangerous to go near. And in the wooden barrel, the E. coli levels were vanishingly small. And what had happened is the lactobacillus that lived in that wood, in that white scum of milk around that barrel, um, started 
to eat the lactose in the milk, their lactobacilli. And they break down the sugars, the lactose, into lactic acid and acidify the milk. And that acidification kills off the E. coli. So you see, those people 500 years ago in the Auvergne were practicing a kind of folk microbiology that we're just catching up to. Um, anyway, so I kind of I learned to love bacteria um, and, uh, and got very involved in this kind of cooking. Now you're thinking, cheese making? I'm never going to make cheese. I'm never going to bake bread. I, you know, I'm still, you know, I'd be, be lucky if I could make some pasta. And the book is not a set of 20-minute recipes to get you back into the kitchen. The book is an exploration of these amazing transformations that our culture has come up with. Um, and it's, my hope is not that you ever bake bread necessarily, although I hope you try it once. Um, but that by reading about it, by reading what's going on, by reading about this everyday magic that surrounds us that, we, that we're totally blind to, you'll appreciate a good loaf of bread. You won't begrudge the baker who asks a fair price for that bread. And you'll eat it with great pleasure. So I'm going to stop there, and I would love to take your questions. Thank you. Thank you very much. That was fascinating. Uh, I can see we've already got hands up, so that's, that's almost a first of the LSE, because usually they're shy to start with, and not, not at the back here. So we have some roving mics, if you can just wait. Maybe we could, could take these two here. Yep, thank you. Thank you very much for your lecture. Um, you talk about cooking. Is the mic on? Yes. Can you hear me? Barely. Uh, speak a little bit louder, please. Uh, thank you. Okay. Is it better now? Yes. Yeah. Uh, you talk about cooking as a political act. I wanted to hear your views on eating as a political act. <laughs> and do you think that vegetarianism or non-vegetarianism actually can be seen as a political statement? And my other question is, how important do you think national cuisines are in defining national identity? And do, does food divide us or unite us? All really good questions. And I'm going to try to remember all of them. Um, Cooking is a political act because the choices you make influence the kind of agriculture we have and, indeed, the kind of society we have. Um, and you could say that eating is a political act, too. And, in fact, Wendell Berry, who's one of my literary heroes, um, do you guys know who Wendell Berry is? A American farmer, Kentucky farmer and writer and poet and novelist. Um, and he said a few years ago that eating is an agricultural act, by which he meant with our eating choices, we influence what happens on the farm in the way I was describing with the rest of Burbank potatoes. But I would argue that cooking is a more effective way to exercise your political will in your eating than simply eating. And the reason is that the cook, as someone who's actually shopping for the food, who, who has the labels in front of them and has much more information at his or her command than the eater, who is very easy to deceive um, and doesn't necessarily know the identity of that hamburger she picks up um, and whether it came from a grass-fed animal that was, you know, part of a solar food chain or came from a feedlot and was part of a fossil fuel chain. So I think the, the cook is empowered, has more power, has more votes in a way, or stronger votes than the eater does. Um, the other way in which I think cooking is political is that going back to this point about how we organize our lives as occasions for consumptions. As I said earlier, we are increasingly dependent on this specialized system to keep us whole. 
One of the reasons I think we have trouble imagining a different future when it comes to things like climate change is that we can't imagine doing without fossil fuel, which is really what underlies all the specialization. The fact that you can hire uh, others from thousands of miles away to, to, to cook your food or, or, grow your or make your clothing uh, or grow your food. Um, and that is debilitating. It underlies any sense of self-reliance. And one of the beauties of beginning to produce something in your life, besides what you do for a living, whether it's growing a little of your own food or cooking it, is that you are changing that balance between consumption and production in your life. And you will find when you do that, even though everything is discouraging you from doing that, and everyone is telling you you're foolish not to outsource this, because we can do it more efficiently, we might even do it better, um, is that you will feel self-reliant. You will feel more independent. Um, and anyone who gardens knows that feeling. Even though you're not completely providing for yourself, you kind of know how it's done. And people who do that in their lives, and I'm talking about all the DIY kinds of activities, I think are ready for bigger changes. I think it's all exercise to prepare us for living in another way. Um, and that's, that's another political implication. National cuisines, they both, you know, they do divide us uh, in ways that are perfectly fine. Um, one of the things I learned is that oh, so many cultures have a fermented food that is defining of their nationality. Uh, and I went to Korea to learn how to make kimchi. And I went to the kimchi museum in Seoul. One of two, it turned out. <laughs> two of six in the whole country. They have six kimchi museums in this country. They define themselves by this food, which I think is wonderful. Um, and lots of people hate it. And that's part of it. Fermented foods are, by definition, acquired tastes. And I asked the docent in this museum, there were all these kindergartners streaming through with their little yellow backpacks and their uniforms, and they look kind of bored, and why are they taking them to kimchi museums? And I asked the docent, and she says, because children are not born liking kimchi. <laughs> they, must be, they must be taught. And these are the foods that do define us. Not the, not the sugary foods. Everybody likes that. Those are universal tastes. It's the weird tastes that define us. And I don't know if you're aware of this. Fuchsia Dunlop, who's a wonderful um, uh, London food writer, has written about this. But the Chinese, when they, when they see a cheese, not even a stinky cheese, but just a good cheddar, they are disgusted by it. They think cheese eating is one of the most disgusting things you can do. But you know what they like? Stinky tofu, which is aptly named. It's tofu that has been marinated in rotten vegetables. I mean, months-old rotten vegetables. It smells like garbage. And they love it. Although I did notice they eat it outdoors. <laughs> Sorry, that was a long answer. Thank you. But it was a long question. How about a one-part question? <laughs> Hi. Here? Yeah. 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 Um, do you think that cooking is uh, healthy or just normal? Do you think that the government shouldn't uh, should label uh, uh, junk food as something not normal, like uh, smoking, for instance, where you can't smoke everywhere right now? I don't know that regulating food that way is going to be the answer. Um, I think there are ways you could set things up to kind of nudge people in the direction of more cooking. I don't know how your tax structure works here in your, in your grocery stores, but um, I can imagine um, that, you know, in general, food is, in our country, there's no sales tax on food. There is on candy and alcohol. But everything else is kind of lumped together as food, including things that I don't think deserve to be called food. I call them edible food-like substances. 
And I could imagine a preferential tax advantage to ingredients, to simple foods with one ingredient, say, or two ingredients, and, charge, and, and higher sales tax on ready meals. And maybe you already have that. But those kind of things, I think, could nudge people a little bit in the direction of foods. But putting warning labels on soda, even though soda is a dangerous food, you know, I, I don't know that that's the answer. Um, I think we have to work on educating consumers. I think we have to uh, try to adjust the environment. You know, people react very strongly to these proposals. We just had this thing in Manchester, right, about that they want to close the the chip shops during the school day, the ones that are near schools. Have you guys heard about this? And um, I don't know what I think about that, except that it may be an experiment worth trying. We have a serious public health problem related to food, um, and we don't know how to get out of it. Um, and so we need to try tax strategies. Maybe we do need to, to change the food environment immediately around schools. I, I would just say try it and see if it works. You know, we're, we, we're all offended by this idea of social engineering. But it's very important to remember that industry, the food industry, is social engineering all the time. And we're not offended at all. When you go into the grocery store and you walk down that cereal aisle, the sweetened cereals with the chocolate and the marshmallows are at eye level, children's eye level, okay? And the, the unsweetened cereals or the plain oatmeal, it's down by your feet, okay? That's social engineering too. And we should be equally offended by that. Um, so I think we need to counter social engineering with social engineering, at least on an experimental basis, and see what works. Thank you. Question over here. Thank you. Um, I don't know whether you heard uh, on the radio... Can you speak I a little louder? Heard on the radio yesterday, I think, of vertical farming? Yeah. Where we're going to... We won't be able to produce food from agriculture anymore. We big population, so is the food there going to be okay just when it's fed chemicals? And uh, that's only a comment, really, because I'm going to talk about dirt and hygiene because I went to a raw food workshop, so I'm eating more raw food now. I've given up more or less red meat, trying to eat a bit more chicken and, and fish. But I'm also trying to give up sugar. And I don't know what sugar... Well, I know what sugar is. A little <laughs> more or less. Um, <clears throat> I forgot the, what the word now. Sucrose? Sucrose, yeah. Sucrose. Um, and I'm putting, make my own ice cream, so I'm using uh, fructose. And then, is that good or bad? Then I, I change the <laughs> Xylitol, stevia, um, agave, palm sugar. There's all these different things going on. Well, let me see I'm what I can still, do with that I'm question. Still I'm still a sugar addict. I'm eating dry currants and raisins. Yeah. <laughs> and the other thing that I've read... Uh, I read, uh, because I read Food Inc. and your article in that, I picked up, uh, Rob, I can't remember his name, Robert something, he wrote The Food Maze. And he said that unpasteurized milk is better because Pasteur got it wrong. Some guy with name beginning with B in France, he, he tried to pinch those ideas and he got it mixed up. So I'm buying unpasteurized milk made from Jersey cows, or produced from Jersey cows, and unpasteurized cheese. So, I don't, have I got a question there, or is it just a comment? <laughs> you better stop sooner, or I'm going to forget the beginning. If, if I drop something on the floor, I'll pick it If up you here. drop something, the five-minute rule, yeah, because, or the five-second rule. Because I think dirt is building my immune system. Okay, all right, a lot of questions there. First of all, I'm sorry to report that fructose is probably worse than glucose. 
Um, fructose, which we usually get in fruit, in very sucrose is is a combination of fru- of fructose and glucose. It's a disaccharide. Um, but fructose by itself is more troublesome. It, it basically gets metabolized in the liver and turned into um, um, uh, fats in the bloodstream. Um, so you're, that's not an improvement. Stevia, I don't know if you can make ice cream with it, but that is a no-calorie sweetener. I don't know what you think about it. Um, you know, getting your, your sugars in fruit is the best idea because when they come in fruit, they're packaged with all these other good things um, like fiber and like um, antioxidants. Um, so I'm not sure about sugar substitutes. One of the mysteries of substituting sugars is... People who switch from sweet, sugar-sweetened sodas to artificially sweetened sodas don't lose any weight. Very curious. Once the body is primed to get some sugar, it will find it in something and keep those levels where it wants to have them. Pasteurized milk, very controversial issue. Um, it is true that when you pasteurize milk, you destroy some nutrients, you destroy a lot of flavor. However, there are risks to unpasteurized milk. And people will often say, and I had a long talk with Sister Noella about this, who makes cheese with unpasteurized milk, but she's not a fanatic about it. And people say, well, that's my grandfather's milk, my grandmother's milk, that's what everybody drank then, so it should be okay. Yes, but you don't have your grandfather's immune system. Many of us have impaired immune systems because of the fact that we've been eating this Western diet for a very long time and that we are more vulnerable to those pathogens. Plus, we've created new pathogens with our agriculture. We've created antibiotic-resistant pathogens uh, that show up in milk. So if you're healthy and hale and and have a good immune system, go for it. Um, But check out the farmer you're using and make sure that it's a clean farm. Go see it. Um, It's a wonderful product. You go every three weeks. Well, then you know. You're, you're buying it directly from your farmer. And so you know what you're doing. You're fine. Um, <laughs> I'm not worried about you. But before everybody else goes out and buys raw milk cheese. And we also have a lot of people in our society who have impaired immune systems because they're on chemotherapy or they're HIV uh, positive. So we have to be careful making those kind of blanket recommendations. In general, we all need more bacteria in our lives and in our diets. Um, We have um, a a huge spike in autoimmune disease in the last several decades. That probably owes to the fact that, I mean, there are several different theories, but one is the hygiene hypothesis, that we're simply not exposed to enough bacteria when we're young, or even in utero, actually. I mean, mothers, while pregnant, um, if they spend time on farms, their children will not have as many allergies or eczema or atopic diseases of various kinds. So um, our fear of bacteria has actually hurt us. Um, And that getting bacteria in your food is a good thing, especially in the form of fermented foods, which are loaded with very good bacteria. But the other thing is to feed the bacteria you already have. Because one of the the problems with processed food is, I don't know if you know this, but you're only 10% human. You're 90% microbes. Some of you might be less than 10% human. I don't know. <laughs> and, um, and, but processed food, Western processed food, is designed to be so quickly absorbed because of the sugars and the fats that very little of it gets to the large intestine where most of the bacteria live and where they're engaged in a process of fermentation also that's really important to your health. And we're not feeding that fermentation. We need to eat for the 100 trillion, not just for the one. 
And, and that means eating lots of plants, lots of fiber, um, lots of bacteria. Um, and so I can imagine kind of reorienting our diet with, with all those little guys in mind. Um, and it wouldn't be that hard. I mean, to the extent you move to plants uh, and whole grains and not white flour, you're doing a lot for them. Time for another? Um, although I, I appreciate the, the, the feeling that cooking is a political act and that it makes people more willing to change, um, I wonder how class and, and poverty fit in to your thinking, because a lot of people in the UK, for example, can't afford to buy fruit and vegetables and, and healthy foods and can only afford cans and fried chicken. And without real political action and systemic change, those people are really never going to have access to the type of diets that you talk about in your books. So um, how do you deal with that slightly alienating factor of pulverized behavior change versus concerted political change that you advocate in your books? Well, I think it's a great question. It's, a re it's the important question. How do you, I mean, when you're speaking about the food, food movement more generally, how do you democratize the benefits of good, sustainably produced, fresh food? But what I'm talking about here when we're talking about cooking is not necessarily it doesn't have to be organic or local to be healthy and cooked. Frozen food, canned food, these are fine. Um, and, and in fact, it's important to remember that cooking is economical. It is simply not true that processed food is cheaper. There are cases. So for example, McDonald's probably sells their hamburgers at a loss because they make so much money on the soda. And that's really where their profits are. But in general, there have been, Mark Bittman has written some really good articles about making a McDonald's meal for yourself, if that's what you want to eat, and you can make it more cheaply than they can sell it to you. So we have to remember the history of cooking is by and large, of, of great cooking, is by and large the history of peasants figuring out how to make delicious food from really unpromising ingredients, the, the nastiest cuts of meat. Um, and that uh, that's what braises and stews were all about. So that a modicum of technique can make up for a lot of money in the marketplace. Now there still is the problem of time. And very often the poor have less time than the wealthy because uh, they work longer hours. And that is an enormous challenge um, to cooking and that drives a lot of people to process food, even if it isn't cheaper. Um, and we have to address that. Um, we really do. I mean. The fact is that there are changes in policy that could make it much easier for everybody to cook. Um, in some of the Scandinavian countries, you can work three quarters time till your child is eight years old. You can share jobs with other people. There is you know, significant uh, maternity and paternity leaves. Um, their labor movement in, in those countries has fought for time, more, than, more even than money. Um, with the result that you create an environment where people have the luxury, and we shouldn't, it sh it's not a luxury, but have the ability to cook. Um, and so I think we have to be aware when we're talking about this, but everyone has the same time crunch to one degree or another. Um, and we need to address it. One way that we can all address it, though, is that we all have several hours of leisure. At, at every, every part of the class ladder, you will find several hours of leisure. And how do we spend them? And one of the things I'm trying to do in this book, which is really not, it's, it's an argument from pleasure, from satisfaction, not from duty or obligation, 
is that what if you reconceived leisure as something other than, I mean, for most of us, we're encouraged to think of leisure as that which you can't pay someone else to do. It would be stupid to pay someone to watch television for you <laughs> or go to the gym or go to a yoga class um, or read a book. Um, and and uh, so we've limited leisure to that category of things, which I think is very small-minded, as important as it is to read books. Um, but what if you conceived of your leisure as a time for production of something, of food, of a little bit of food, uh, a gr growing food too? And that's another, when there is land available, that is the cheapest source of organic, fresh produce you can possibly have. Um, so there, there are class dimensions, but the problems are continuous across classes also. And um, uh, in the general larger picture of the food movement, that's a significant challenge. This, is, this has been an elite movement. A great many social movements for change, I will point out, however, have begun as elite movements. Uh, women's suffrage, the environmental movement, abolition. These all began as middle class, upper class movements because people had the leisure to get involved in these issues. The challenge is if it's still an elite movement in 20 years, that will be an indictment. I don't consider it an indictment yet because so many people in the food movement are working on issues of food access. As they have pushed this issue of access to fresh local food though, one of the things they've discovered is that it is not enough to give people access to food. You also need to give them the tools to prepare the food. And that's why we need to teach cooking in the schools again, which I think there is about to be an announcement uh, by your education minister, um, as at least what, that's what I keep hearing, that it will become a required part, along with gardening, a, a required part of the curriculum. And I think that is just one of the most positive things I've heard in a long time. This is a really critical life skill that we need to teach everybody. Um, you just mentioned the Scandinavian countries. I wondered which other countries had an impressive record um, when it comes to maintaining the traditions of home cooking and how and why they've been able to achieve that. Is it because they've successfully resisted the incursions of um, corporations or is it because corporations have never encroached into their food systems in the first place? Well, countries that... Um I don't, remember the, I, I don't remember all the countries that have high rates of home cooking still. It is higher in France. It's higher in Italy. It's higher in Greece. The countries we think of as having great cuisines. Um, and, uh, and these countries, and I don't want to overly romanticize them because things are changing rapidly. I was talking to an Italian journalist today, and she said, you know, the British idealize our cooking, and it's, it's not what they think it is. Um, I was very discouraged to hear that because I do too. Um, but that they're moving towards supermarkets, they're moving toward fast food, even though you see a lot less fast food when you go to Italy so far. Um, but they had a culture of which they were very proud, and going back to that first question that was defining, uh, and so that they, def they defended their food culture uh, more avidly than, than we certainly did in America. Um, and um, uh, I think there are countries in Asia, too, that, that still do a lot of cooking, um, Southeast Asia in particular. China is moving very quickly toward, a f toward, toward fast food and, and eating in a Western way. And, and lo and behold, they're having very high rates for the first time of chronic diseases. Um, so one of the, the, one of the things that I'm hoping to do by being out talking about these issues, and I do travel extensively to do it, is... Um, 
you know, the glamour of fast food is powerful. The, the corporations are out there telling a story about it and how modern it is and how progressive it is. And we need to counter that story with some other stories about the beauty of these traditional food cultures and the health benefits. I mean, one of the most amazing facts in studying nutrition is that there is no one perfect human diet. We are omnivores, and we have found a healthy way to eat on six of the seven continents from what nature has to offer in those places. Every single traditional diet has kept people healthy and well for a very long time. Okay? Sometimes there wasn't enough food, but whether it's you know, a diet of 70% fat, as you have in Greenland, where people eat lots of blubber. Um, you know, we hear fat is so dangerous. They're, they have no diabetes, no heart disease. Or the, the Maasai warriors, in, uh, uh, tribesmen in, in Africa, who eat meat, and cattle blood, and milk and they're some of the healthiest people on earth. Or in, uh, Central American Indians who, who reside on a very carbohydrate-rich diet of corn, all healthier than people on the Western diet. What an achievement for a civilization to be able to invent the one diet that reliably makes people sick. <laughs> so we need to preserve these traditional diets and defend them uh, before they're all gone. So today is the, is the feast day of Corpus Christi, uh, the occasion on which the church gives thanks for the um, institution of the Holy Eucharist, a meal. Uh, I'm wondering whether, um, I would hazard guess not many people are recognizing this, this great feast of the church today. Uh, I'm wondering whether there is a, there is a relationship between the, um, the decline of religious practices and, the, um, and the, the emergence of this, the, these patterns of, of unhealthy eating, particularly in Europe? That's a very interesting question, and, and I'll be perfectly honest. I don't know. Um, I think that uh, religion obviously concerned itself with food in many ways, and I spent a lot of time in the barbecue section looking at Leviticus and all the rules that govern eating in the Old Testament, which are fascinating. Um, many of them nonsensical, um, but still have a rationale around knitting a culture together. Um, I'm talking about the kosher rules. And, um, uh, and this need to make rules around food and invest food with sacramental significance. Um, to treat food as sacrament is, is the greatest defense against fast food, in a way. Um, one other thing I'll say about that is Sister Noella, the cheese nun, she believes that cheese should be added to the sacrament, to the Eucharist. And she has a very interesting argument. First of all, the two, the two foods that are there already are, are what? The products of fermentation, right? Bread and wine. Because fermentation is so magic. Um, it, is the tr it, is, it is the transformation of one, the transcendence of a very ordinary thing into something very special. But she thinks cheese belongs because cheese reminds us of our mortality. The stinkier it is, the older it is. And that it's very hard to make cheese, um, to, to contemplate cheese without thinking about mortality. So she thinks we should add it. Um, and uh, it's a heretical notion, but I think it's one that we should entertain. Hello. Uh, I would like to talk about fish and chips. <laughs> uh, fish and chips is... A, I can see it as a, a political statement from the British culture. It's available everywhere on Fridays, including canteens and schools, canteens on any workplace. Uh, not being British, oh, my, my culture also has really unhealthy food, which is traditional. And eating it is a political act. Like eating burgers when I was 10 
was also political act. It was saying you were happy to eat American food. Maybe somebody more left-wing wouldn't do that in Portugal, where I come from. Uh, or somebody that wants to eat it to show off how progressive they are. So from a political point of view, how can we make unhealthy food become not progressive and actually uh, a, a sign of how an educated and, and backward-looking you are? Where are you from? Portugal. Okay. Um, yeah, it's true. I mean, you know, that, that's what's amazing about eating. I mean, you can, you can have any kind of politics you want. And, and we have, we have a, a rejectionist uh, politics of, of, of eating in America right now where certain people will opt for the most flagrantly unhealthy food. And Kentucky Fried Chicken, you know, took the cake recently with a, um, a sandwich where instead of bread... There's cheese and meat in the middle. Instead of bread are two chicken breasts that have been fried on either end. This is like, you know, three days' worth of calories in one. And there are lots of young men who, who flagrantly eat these kind of foods. They're called stunt foods, and they're very popular right now. So you're right. And you can identify with American politics by eating a burger or not. And so we have a whole range of expression. The only thing I'll say about that is that these unhealthy foods are not intrinsically evil. Um, I think what's happened is that their place in our lives as special occasions, I mean, I'm talking about cakes and burgers and fries and, and I guess fish and chips too. Um, and I don't know that fish and chips is inherently so terrible. I mean, I think a lot of it would depend on what kind of oil is being used. There are some really unhealthy oils used to cook it in, but it could be healthier oils. Um, that, you know... It's, it's, the, it's moving to a point where we have these kind of foods, not every Friday, um, but every day. It's the French fries twice a day, not once a week or every two weeks. And so it's really more about the place in our lives of these foods and how, what our default food is. Not so much that we have to stigmatize this food as evil. Fish and chips are wonderful. Hamburgers are wonderful. I love these things. Um, the challenge is not to have it take over the calendar. I'm from a country that's being labeled an emerging economy. So we have all the world leaders beating at our doors for access to our markets. And um, the, the revolution that happened in the 50s and 60s in the U.S. where the women went out to work, that came very late to our country. It came in the 70s and 80s. So we are just getting a taste of what has always been advertised socially engineered as the standard of living, the amount to earn, the way to live, what to eat. Uh, Cocoa Pops possibly came in uh, to my country in my lifetime, late, 70, late 90s, in fact. So we are just at that threshold of tasting what even the Western diet could be or what we can afford right now. It's all our aspirations, all what the UN has said, oh, these are your developmental goals. You have to achieve this to get money from us. That's what the IMF pounded into us. So we are at that threshold now with the money in our pockets to access the foods that we can rightfully access. And you're telling me to go back into the kitchen? <laughs> How dare you? Well, you know, y you have an advantage in that you have the example of a country like the United States or Great Britain
where there is a public health crisis related to food. You know what happens when everybody begins to eat this way. We didn't know when we started out. Um, and the desire of many cultures to repeat these mistakes uncritically, China is a great example, um, knowing full well what this kind of diet, what these rates of meat eating will do, nevertheless wants this powerful symbol of modernism. I don't know what you do about that, except that the story is out there and it needs to be told. Um, that your food culture is a, is a beautiful and health-giving thing and that opening your borders to all this crap is going to have a profound effect on the public health. Um, so it's a decision that needs to be taken. And, um, uh, and, it's, and, it is a, and it is a fateful decision. Um, and where, what happens to cooking in your culture, um, you know, I mean, I, 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 this, this argument needs to be completed between men and women and children. We need to bring children into the kitchen. In America, at least, I don't know if it's true here, we have really done, a, done poorly by our kids by letting them off the hook about work at home, chores. Um, because we're so concerned about their success. And if they tell us they have homework, that's a free pass. You, well, you, don't, have to, you don't have to take out the garbage tonight. You have homework. Um, and that, so I think getting the kids involved, too, it can't all, the, the burden can't be on women alone. I mean, that just, we're never going to go back to that, and we shouldn't go back to that. We need to complete that uncomfortable conversation and figure out a new division of labor and use also the labor-saving devices and products we have. Um, like I was talking about frozen food. I mean, there's a place for that. We don't have to make, there are wonderful 20-minute meals in every culture um, that you can get on the table. Um, so anyway, I, you know, it's not for me to, to say what you should do or what your country should do. All, all I can do is tell stories and, and, and other journalists too about here's what happened when we went down this path. Think about it. Thank you, though. It's a great question. Hi. Um, do you think uh, that policies, government policies, uh, should uh, be directed to restrain uh, junk food in schools or restrain uh, publicity for junk food uh, directed to children? Yes. Um, I think that the schools, I think that there are different rules for kids than there are for adults. I think that uh, marketing to children should be banned. I, I, for the same reason we don't market alcohol and cigarettes to kids. Um, because, you know, our ideology is personal choice and free choice. But that doesn't apply to children. When you talk about the nanny state, the reason we use this term is because kids need nannies or parents. Um, and that uh, to let industrial food producers get between parents and their kids, undermining the authority of parents and the choice of parents uh, around food, I think we need to stop. We can't have junk food in schools. Um, that is, you know, everything that happens in schools is about teaching, including the presence of a Coca-Cola machine. It's sending a very powerful signal. We also have those signals in hospitals in America. You know, we have 40% of hospitals in America sell fast food. Um, what kind of message is that sending? But that's not about kids. Um, so I think 
the food available in schools is we should think of as part of the education we're giving and we should be setting good examples and marketing to kids should simply not be allowed. Beyond that, um, as I said earlier, I think we need to experiment. Um, you know, Mayor Bloomberg in New York has taken a very uh, aggressive stance um, and he's gotten, you know, a world of grief for it. Um, he tried to tax sugar um, and he tried to uh, regulate the size of portions in sodas so that you could, in certain public places, you couldn't get a 32-ounce soda. Gee, what, what a denial of rights. Um, you could only get a 16-ounce, but you could get two 16-ounce sodas if you wanted. All he wanted was you to pause and think before you went to 32 ounces. This is not left-wing social engineering. This is, this is the nudge. This is what behavioral economics talk about the tiny little changes in our environment that can guide behavior down good paths. It seems to me we should try that um, for the reasons I was saying earlier. Um, there is so much social engineering going on all around us. Um, so my attitude toward all these schemes is we need to find out what could work. If sugar taxes work and they reduce soda consumption and that reduces type 2 diabetes and that reduces health care costs, yes. But maybe it won't work. We try it somewhere, and then we toss it out, and we try for something else. So I think we need a lot of experimentation, social experimentation, um, because this public health crisis is going to bankrupt us, uh, not, to, not to mention cause untold suffering. Hi. Hi. Um, just two quick questions, if I may. Um, how do you respond to the argument that industrial agriculture is the only way to feed a six billion plus planet? And uh, if you could possibly share with us your thoughts on the China study and their findings. I'm not going to get into the China study, but um, let me talk about feeding the world. Um, this is an argument that has been used to sell the industrialization of agriculture for many years, when there was no shortage of calories in the world, um, because it was very important to persuade farmers to act against their self-interest, which is to say to overproduce. Um, Farmers for a very long time used to band together to control production for their own benefit, to keep prices high. We had grain reserves that also helped do that. Um, but that didn't serve the corporations that sell you processed food. Um, it didn't serve a lot of powerful interests. So we gradually abolished the grain reserves, and we started this ideology of we must overproduce to feed the world. Um, in fact, those, those periods of overproduction led to hunger in many parts of the world. Because when you dump cheap agricultural produce on the rest of the world, you disable farming in, in other places where it's not subsidized. And EU farming is subsidized. American farming is subsidized. So feeding the world makes many people hungry. Um, so be suspicious of that argument. Now, looking ahead, we look forward to, what, 9 billion, 11 billion people. We're going to need more food. Is that true? Well. I think we shouldn't take these things on faith. We are now producing 6,000 calories for every person living on the planet. You only need 2,000 a day to live. How is it that we have a billion who are not getting enough to eat now with all that food? What it suggests that yield is not the problem. What it suggests is that the allocation of those calories, who has the power to command them, to buy them, and where do they go? And look at where they go. A third of them are simply wasted, okay, at every level of the food system, um, beginning in your refrigerator, going back to the farm. 
pure waste. Forty percent of the grain we're growing is going to feed animals. And the question about meat came up earlier. If we insist on eating meat, nine ounces per person per day in America, there will be a shortage of calories, without question. We can't do that. Um, but if we eat less meat, there will be plenty of protein for many more people than we have now. The other place a lot of those calories is going is into your car. We are using something like 20% of the grain crop in the United States is going to power automobiles. So to construe the issue as we need to maximize yield and we therefore need GM and we need all these technologies, um, it's a much more complicated question. Um, we are not feeding the world now with all the food we have. Um, and, and we need to look at these contexts. And by the way, GM, contrary to what another premise of another argument, does not necessarily increase yield. And that is not what it's good for. Uh, what it does is increase the convenience of the largest farmers. And GM is not producing food for people to eat. It is producing animal feed and uh, car feed um, so far. Maybe they can figure out an application of this technology that will solve an important human problem. But they have not done that, and they're not close. Hello. Um, I think, owing to the fact that you know, we've all acknowledged that this problem is becoming more important in places like China and Can you India. Speak up a little louder. Uh, um, I was just saying that, owing to the fact that we've all acknowledged that these problems are becoming more important in China, India, and other growing economies, is it not fair to agree that it's not really a Western diet? but rather a diet that is a result of urbanization and individualism, where like the social unit is being shrunk down smaller and smaller. From my opinion, that would kind of explain why we're all really happy to sit and watch TV. Very mm -hmm. few of us will take time to cook a whole meal for ourselves, where we could just order in or buy a ready meal, because it's not really appealing as a single person. You know, and most of us, when we're at university or wherever, these are really formative times of our lives, and we're cooking for ourselves. So maybe, and this is my opinion. I want to hear your your opinion on it. The problem is not our attitude to food, but like the social structure of the world we live in now. I think you make a very good point. Um, food is food is never an isolated thing. It is it is it is embedded in a context of lifestyle. And, and values. Um, and the Western diet is no longer just the Western diet. Um, it started there, and that's how it got that name. It was named by British um, uh, medical men um, who observed when they went to the colonies that when this kind of food, refined sugar, white flour, came in, people got this set of diseases called the Western diseases. In America, actually, we call it the standard American diet. Um, I don't know what, sad, yeah. And I don't, know what we'll, I don't know what we'll call it as it takes over the world. It'll just be food, I'm afraid. I think we should continue to call it edible food-like substances, however, to preserve the, the, that beautiful word for real things. Um, uh, but yeah, it is part of, a, 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 of so many other changes. And when you think about the market economy, it doesn't want you to cook. It wants you to watch TV and absorb those messages. One of the, the things about cooking shows on television is that they're not inspiring. They're intimidating. Like everything on television, I'm not talking about daytime cooking, I'm talking about the competitive reality, the sports-oriented uh, cooking shows at night. They make cooking look really hard. 
and scary and, and um, work best left to professionals. Um, and they do what TV usually does. TV is never interested in motivating you to get up off the couch. <laughs> TV is about feeding itself, um, of get, getting you to absorb as many of these messages as they can. So they love a good show that scares you, you know, and pins you to the couch. A lot of work was done on violence on television in the 70s in America, a lot of research, and, and it was found that um, uh, the reason there was so much violence on TV was it kept old people from going outside. And TV networks love this. <laughs> People were afraid. They were, they were seeing this, this, you know, you stepped out your door and you were going to get shot. And um, so, so you've got to, you have to understand the interests of the different forces in, in our lives. And, and they don't want you to, to do anything for yourself that they can possibly do for you. One more. Okay, just take one here. I'm sorry, I know there are others, but we're, we're running out of time. Hi. Um, to the extent that we're not... Can you ask one? No, you didn't? Okay, sorry. <laughs> I thought you were, somebody was getting in too. Okay. Uh, to the extent that we're not talking about fast food restaurants, uh, don't you think that going to a good restaurant that tries to preserve traditional recipes is a political act as well, and not just cooking? I mean, you know, restaurants have a role in preserving traditional knowledge of, of cuisine and you know, traditional food. And coming, coming from, from France, I know that restaurants play a major role in trying to preserve those recipes that people tend to forget. Because you, you mentioned that you know, cooking was, like home cooking was high in France, but France is the second largest uh, world market for McDonald's. Um, so it's a bit of a paradox. So I know that restaurants as well, not just cooking, but restaurants, good restaurants, traditional restaurants can have a role. In Without question. Um, and, you know, I, I tried to make the distinction between cooking by humans and corporations. And that was partly to uh, include the chefs, uh, who are humans, for the most part. <laughs> Um, and uh, restaurants and chefs have actually played a very positive role in the food movement. Um, going back to, I think, the pioneering work of Alice Waters, who's a, a chef in Berkeley, um, and uh, who really made the point, um, after spending time in France and experiencing uh, flavors that she could not find in America and starting this restaurant in Berkeley, she went searching to recover that taste she'd had in France. And she found that th there, were, there was a small group of farmers that we now call organic, they weren't called that then, that were growing food that had that kind of quality, that intensity of flavor. And they were growing varieties, older varieties, heirlooms. And she started supporting them, and she started celebrating them. And, um, and that chefs have, have taken some of their glamour, and they've turned it on really good farmers. Um, and, and elevated the prestige of farming, um, which has been denigrated for a hundred years uh, in our country. And so chefs have played a very constructive role. You know, there's a, there's a line, I think, in Livy, who, uh, the Roman writer, who said, when the, when the, when the chefs in your civilization um, become celebrities, you're on the road to decadence. <laughs> I don't think this is true. I don't think it's true anymore. I think they do play a very positive role. But, but, Restaurant food is very elite. Restaurant food is something that we don't have every day. Um, very few of us can afford it. And on balance, if you ate restaurant food every day, you would also be struggling with your diet in various ways because it's rich. It's, it's special occasion food. Um, but there is a very important role for preserving uh, recipes, for preserving species, and for teaching us, training us, giving us 
the, um, the standards of taste so that we don't tolerate junk. Um, all that is, uh, you know, they are among the storytellers. Um, and they're very important, and they've got a very important story to tell. So, yeah, I would not, I would not, I would not lump the restaurants in with McDonald's and all those other companies. Thank you so much for your excellent, difficult questions. <laughs>